Good morning. Good to see you. Thank you. Great to be back. Thanks so much. Thank you. Great to be back at the harbor. Love hanging out with Steve and, and uh, uh, Rick and uh, all the folks here who serve and, and are part of this congregation. And so I'm glad to be here with you, especially because I get to talk about my favorite topic, which is the grace of God. You know, there's a story about C.S. Lewis, and one day he was walking around the halls of Oxford University, and he heard this commotion coming from one of the lecture halls, and, and he opens the door, and he goes in, and he sees these, all these professors and, and, and scholars who are arguing, who are debating, who are, you know, very animated in their discussion, and he said, what are you talking about? And they said, we're trying to figure out what is really unique about Christianity, and C.S. Lewis laughed and said, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. There is no other world religion that is based on grace. Grace is the lifeblood of Christianity. What is grace? We can define it just using nine words. Grace is the favor shown by God to sinners. That's what grace is. Or we could elaborate and we could say that grace is that free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that we cannot earn, we do not deserve, we cannot merit, and which Jesus purchased for us on the cross when he died as our substitute to pay for all of our sins, and which he offers to us as a free gift to anyone who wants to receive it in repentance and faith. That's a little more of an elaborate definition of grace. But here's what I noticed. It's interesting that when Jesus was going to talk about grace, he didn't offer a big theological explanation. You know what he did? He told a story. He told a parable, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Maybe you've heard of that parable. It's a story about a young man who was um, uh, very self-possessed and very rebellious, and he decides uh, to get his inheritance early from his father and go away to a far country and to live a life of debauchery and wine, women, and song. He goes through all the money. Now he's broke. Now he's living in poverty. Now he's slopping the pigs, and he realizes one day the pigs are eating better than I am. So he, he decides he wants to try to go home, but I mean, how can he even do that? Would his father even accept him? So he's thinking, you know, probably the very best thing that can happen to me is my father will treat me like a hired hand. And so he goes home, and what happens? Well, verse 21 says, The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And a great celebration is held. And friends, that is a picture of the grace of God. That not only does God the Father forgive, but he wants to enfold us into his family. He wants to adopt us as his son or as his daughter. And so a story like that shines uh, the spotlight on grace in ways that a mere theological definition cannot. And so I decide as we begin this series on the case for grace, I'm, I'm going to focus 
on two true stories, stories about people who I have come to know, because these stories illustrate what you need to know if you want to meet the God of grace. The first story is about an orphan. And the point of the story is very simple. The point of the story is this. God loves you, and he wants to adopt you as his son or as his daughter. True story about something that happened in Korea right after the Korean War. A woman had gotten pregnant from an American soldier. He goes back to the States. She never sees him again. She gives birth to a biracial child in post-war Korea. There was great discrimination against children, especially who were mixed race. And a lot of women who gave birth at that time out of wedlock ended up committing suicide because they couldn't stand the being ostracized and, and, and criticized and attacked by their neighbors and their community. But this woman, even though her child looked different than the other children, her hair was curly, her, um, her, her hair was lighter colored than the other kids, and people rejected her and called her names and so forth. But the mother wanted to do her best to try to raise this child, and she did. She tried for several years, for about four years, to raise a child. But then an opportunity for her came up to get married, but the child was not part of the deal. And so she had to give up her child. So she put the child on a train to go to the other part of the country where she would, the the child would be raised by an uncle. And the little girl, she's four years old. She's by herself. She's on the train. She gets off at the wrong station. She never connects with her uncle. And she begins at the age of four, if you can imagine, she begins to live by herself on the streets of Korea. I was a horrible existence. And she wasn't alone. There were packs of children like this who'd been rejected by their parents, who were born out of wedlock, and they were living on the streets, and they were sleeping in abandoned buildings and under bridges and in caves, and they were eating whatever they could find in the fields. In fact, this little girl learned to to wait outside the little uh, mouse holes, and when the mouse would come out, she would grab it, and she would eat it. She would eat the ears. She would eat the tail. She would eat the whole thing. She was trying to survive. She'd steal melons from the farmer's fields so that she could eat. She was attacked by gangs. She was horribly abused. She was taunted ruthlessly with the ugliest word in the Korean language, the word tugi, which means alien devil. It's the worst thing you can say about someone else. And it didn't take long for this little four-year-old girl to begin to draw conclusions about herself. This is what she said years later. She said, Lee, when you, hear what you, when you hear what you are when you're a little child, day after day, you begin to believe that about yourself. I believed anyone could do whatever they wanted to me physically because I wasn't a person. I was inhuman. I was dirty. I was unclean. I had no name. She couldn't remember the name that her mother had given her. She had no identity. She said, I had no family, I had no future, and I hated myself. Now, if you have ever had a four-year-old child or a four-year-old grandchild, like me, you just can't imagine them living by themselves in in the country, in the streets. And it was a horrible existence for her. She contracted, ultimately, cholera. 
and she crawled up on a heap of trash to die. But there was a nurse from World Vision, and this assignment given to this nurse was to go out and to find little children who could be rescued. But she could only rescue those who had a chance to live. And so she, she comes along, she sees this little girl on this trash heap dying of cholera. And she comes over, she looks at her, but there was nothing she could do. This is not a child she could bring to the orphanage. This child was going to die. So the, or, the, the nurse began to walk away, and as she did, she heard the voice of God. And the voice of God said, she's mine. And so the nurse turns and she goes and she picks up the little girl and she takes her to the orphanage. Now, this wasn't much of an orphanage. It was, it was pretty primitive. I mean, there was no heat. There was no um, uh, beds. They would sleep. The kids would sleep on mats on the floor. There was no plumbing and so forth. But at least it was a place to live. And so this little girl began to live in this orphanage for the next uh, couple of years. And then one day, news came that an American couple was going to come the next day and adopt a baby boy. So all the orphans got excited because this meant at least somebody was going to have a future. Somebody was going to have a family. Somebody was going to have hope. And so this assignment the little girl was given was to clean up the baby boys. So she gave them baths, and she cleaned them up as best she could, and she, she put on the best clothes they could muster for these children. And the next day, this American couple came. This is what she said. This is how she described it. She said, it was like Goliath had come back to life. And I saw that man with his huge hands lift up each baby. And I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face. And I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. And then she said, he saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now listen to her description of herself. She said, although I was almost nine years old by then and had been in the orphanage for about two years, I still had dirt on my body. It was ground into my skin. I had lice so bad that my head was actually white. I had worms so bad in my stomach that when they got hungry, they'd crawl up out of my throat. I had a lazy eye from malnutrition that just sort of flopped around in its socket. I weighed less than 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had boils all over me and scars on my face. And yet, still, she said, the man came over to where I was. And he got down as low as he could, right down on his haunches, and he looked me straight in my eyes. And he stretched out that enormous hand of his and he laid it on the side of my face. And it felt so good and it felt so right. What what was he saying by that gesture? He was saying, this is the child who I want. This is the little girl I want to adopt. And as she told me the story about her life, my, my, my mind just sort of froze on that image because I thought, okay, here is a picture of what the God of grace looks like. This is a picture of the God of grace because God peers beneath the ugliness of our sin. He, he 
peers beneath the scars of our wrongdoing and of our failures, and he sees the core of our soul, which is made in the image of God Almighty. And he wants to lock eyes with each and every human being and lay his enormous gentle hand on on the side of your face and say, this is the child who I want to adopt. If you're like me, you, you look around, you think, you know, everybody's got it all together but me. Every, everybody's, you know, pulled together. And, and, and if, if everybody knew the, the secrets of my life, if they knew my sins, if they knew my secret fantasies, if they knew the clandestine transgressions of my life, I would be rejected every bit as much as that little Korean girl. But the amazing thing about the God of grace, he does see all that. He does know all that. But he sees us differently than we see each other. He sees us through heaven's eyes. Phil McHugh wrote a song called In Heaven's Eyes about the way God looks at you and me. And the refrain goes, in heaven's eyes, there are no losers. In heaven's eyes, no hopeless cause, only people like you with feelings like me amazed by the grace we can find in heaven's eyes. And because of his grace, God wants to forgive you. He wants to adopt you. And that, friends, is the first thing you need to know about the God of grace. But then something incredible took place. As that man was reaching out to that little girl, she said, oh, the hand on my face felt so good, and inside I was saying, oh, keep it up. Don't let your hand go. But she said, nobody had ever shown that kind of affection for me before, and I didn't know how to respond. So listen to this. So I yanked his hand off my face and looked him in the eye and spit on him. Twice I spit on him, and then I ran away, and I hid in the closet. Can you imagine? This window of opportunity is opening up for this little girl, an opportunity perhaps of a family, of a future, of a hope, and this window is open up, and what does she do? She slams it shut. And you think, how could she do that? Why would she do that? And yet, haven't we all done that with God? At some point in your life, have you not felt the presence of God? Have you not felt that God was so real to you in that moment? Haven't you felt that moment when you felt attracted toward God and pulled toward God? But what happened? You kind of let the window of opportunity slide shut. I have. I mean, have you ever had a time, maybe when you were little, you went to Sunday school one day, and and you heard the teacher talk about the love of God, and, and something pulled you toward that. But then as you got older, it wasn't cool to go to Sunday school anymore, and you kind of drifted away, and you just let the window of opportunity slide shut. Or maybe you went to a Christian wedding, and you heard the pastor talking about what it's like to build a marriage, to build a family around Jesus Christ, and it sounded so good and right and wholesome and true, and and you were attracted toward it, but then you go to work the next day, You get busy, and you just let the window of opportunity slide shut. Or you go on vacation to the Rocky Mountains, and at night, and all the stars, and you look out, and you just feel in the grandeur of nature, you feel so close to the Creator, and you want to know Him, you want to experience Him. But then the vacation ends, 
and life resumes and the window of opportunity slides shut. Or maybe there's a crisis in your life and your child is sick or your child is rebellious or you're sick or whatever it is. And in the midst of that, you call out to him for his help and you make promises to him. And guess what? You come through that crisis and you forget about the promises and the window of opportunity slides shut. Have you ever done that, friends? I have. I have. Well, let me tell you something about the God of grace. And that is, he looks a lot like the man and the woman in that orphanage. You know, nobody would have blamed them if they went away and, and, and never came back. Nobody would have blamed them if they chose another child, someone who didn't have this emotional baggage, some, someone who didn't have this, these physical ailments and, and experienced the trauma that this little girl had. Nobody would have blamed them if they had chosen another child to adopt. But you know what happened? The next day, they returned to that orphanage. And despite their initial rejection by that little girl, they looked and they said, you remember the one that spit on us? That's the one we want to adopt. And they pulled the little girl into their arms and they never let her go. And they named her Stephanie. And Stephanie saw in her mom and dad the grace of God. And she came to faith in Jesus Christ at a young age, and her dad baptized her in the ocean. And she grew up, and today she's married, and she lives in Portland, Oregon. And she has a ministry to help young girls know that there is a heavenly father who loves them, wants to adopt them, wants to forgive them, wants to be their heavenly father. You know, the Bible uses this imagery of adoption. Romans 8.23 said, we wait eagerly for our adoption by God. There's something in us that, that, that has us waiting eagerly that someday God might adopt us as a son or daughter. The great theologian J.I. Packer said this. It's a beautiful quote. He said, of all the gifts of grace, adoption is the highest He said, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. Now, I know some of you didn't have good fathers. None of us has had a perfect dad, right? And maybe this idea of a heavenly father who wants to adopt you into his family, maybe that's not very attractive to you. Because your earthly father abused you or disappointed you or let you down. And you're thinking, no, a heavenly father is just going to be worse. Friends, it's not true. You know, we can all imagine, even if you had a very difficult relationship with your dad, nevertheless, you can imagine, can't you, what a perfect father would be like, right? We can all imagine that. What would a perfect father would be like? He'd be loving. He'd be gracious. He'd be kind. He'd be your biggest cheerleader. He would be your biggest encourager. He'd pull you up on his lap. He'd put his gentle hand on the side of your face. And he'd say, I love having this child in our family. And he would would be a, a father of grace. Friends, that is who God is. That is God the Father. Don't think of your earthly father. We all have flawed earthly dads. Think of perfection. That's your heavenly father. That's the one who wants to adopt you. 
And the truth is, you may have turned your back on God. You may have spit in his eye. You may have allowed the window of opportunity to shut. That may be true of you, but you know what? You may have turned your back on God. God has not turned his back on you. He hasn't turned his back on you. The danger is not on God's side. The danger is on your side. Because the more you let that window of opportunity shut, the more you spit in the eye of God, the more you turn the other direction when he's calling out to you, the harder your heart gets. The more calluses grow on your soul. And the harder it is for you to hear the voice of God calling your name. The danger is on your side. And so my advice is, when you sense that window of opportunity is open, jump through it, dive through it, clamor through it, and meet the God of grace. So that's the first story. God loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to adopt you as a son or daughter. The second story is about a killer by the name of Billy Moore. And the second story has a lesson as well. It's a simple lesson. And that is that God wants to transform you and he wants to make your life count. Let me tell you about Billy. Billy grew up in Georgia, a poor family, got in trouble as a young kid, burglaries, little crimes that he would commit. He joined the army to try to get his life straightened out. That didn't work. So one night, he's living in a little trailer, he's drinking heavily, and a friend comes over, and the friend says, I know you need some money to pay the rent, don't you, Billy? He said, yeah. And and Billy said, yeah. And, And he said, well, Billy, there's a guy, a grandfather, an old guy, who lives in another trailer not far from here, and he doesn't believe in banks, so he keeps all his money under his mattress. And Billy said, really? So Billy Moore got a gun. And he went over and he found that trailer and he broke in and the old man tried to stop him and Billy Moore shot him dead. And he stole $5,600 and he fled. Well, it didn't take long for the police to determine that Billy Moore had committed the crime. And so they came to Billy's trailer that night. They arrested him. They took him away. And so here Billy is sitting in a cell that first night in jail. And he realized I have no future. I have no hope. I just have a date with the electric chair down the corridor. But shortly after his arrest, a a Christian couple who had a prison ministry came to the jail where Billy was, and they told Billy about the God of grace. And they said, Billy, God loves you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to adopt you as his son and... He's willing to give you a fresh start. Billy, he's willing to give you a new chance at life. And Billy laughed at him. He looked at him dumbfounded. He said, what are you, an idiot? He said, you don't understand. I went into someone's home, and I committed a burglary, and I killed him. I'm charged with capital murder. I'm all out of fresh starts. My life is over. There is an electric chair down the hall, and I am going to die in that chair before long. It's too late for me. There are no more fresh starts. But the Christian man said to Billy, Billy, it's never too late. 
The God of grace loves you. I'm telling you, he wants to adopt you. He wants to transform you. And Billy, I don't know how he's going to do it, but he will find a way to make your life count if you give your life to him. And so Billy not only heard these words about the grace of God, he saw the grace of God in this couple that came to visit him. He said later, he said, nobody had ever told me that Jesus loves me and died for me. It was a love I could feel. It was a love I wanted. It was a love that I needed. And so Billy Moore, as broken and as hopeless of an individual as there ever was, said yes to this offer by God to forgive him and to adopt him. And Billy not only received Christ, he's baptized in a rusty old bathtub right there in the jail. And he went later into court, and he admitted the obvious. He was guilty. And the judge says, you're darn right you're guilty. And I sentence you to die in the electric chair. Well, it took 16 years for his case to wind through the courts until the execution of Billy took place. And in the meantime, during the 16 years, Billy opened his life wide to God. I mean, he became a different person. He became a model prisoner. In fact, his nickname among the guards was the peacemaker. He brought calm to death row, a place where there had only been conflict and hatred and violence in the past. He led so many of these death row inmates to faith in Jesus Christ that death row took on a whole new demeanor, a place of peace and love and encouragement to each other. Billy took 32 correspondence courses on the Bible during those 16 years. And he became such an effective counselor that local churches, when they had a troubled teenager, would send them to death row to be counseled by Billy Moore. So many people on death row and beyond were impacted by this killer in a cage. Friends, the question is not and has never been, will God forgive you for the wrongs you committed in your life? That's never been the issue. 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's not the question, will he forgive you? The question is, will you ask for God's forgiveness? Will you ask? I mean, think of this. If he can forgive a killer like Billy Moore who murdered a man in cold blood during a burglary, what sin have you possibly committed that God can't forgive you of? And friends, the question has never been whether God can turn your life around and make it count. Because 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's not the question. The question is, will you do what Billy did and open your life up to God to allow him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to change your values, to change your character, to change your morality, to change your attitude and your philosophy and your worldview, to change the purpose of your life so it's more than just eating and drinking and going to bed and getting up and going to work? I mean, if, a God, if God can use a man locked in a cage like Billy Moore to make an eternal impact on so many other people, how much more can he take your life and use you 
to make a difference in your community, in your church, in your family, in your neighborhood, in this town, in this state, and in this world. Well, finally, August of 1990 came, and the courts caught up with Billy. Supreme Court confirmed and affirmed his death sentence. And they shaved Billy's head so the electrode could be put on. They shaved his legs so that the electrode could be put on his legs and the deadly currents could course through his body and kill him. And he was waiting in the holding cage right next to the electric chair in those final hours before death. And his lawyers would call him up during that stay as he was waiting to be killed. And I asked his lawyers, I said, what was that like to talk to Billy in those final moments? And they said, well, Lee, it was the strangest thing. We would call with the intention of encouraging and consoling Billy, but Billy would end up consoling us. He'd say, are you guys doing okay? You're going to get through this all right? Are you coping with this? Why? Because Billy Moore was ready to die. God had forgiven him. God had adopted him as his son. And Billy Moore knew one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that is if God was willing to do that, if the God of grace was willing to pour out his love on him, then he could trust that God for what was going to happen after he died. Well, Billy just had a few hours left to live when something extraordinary happened. The Georgia Pardon and Parole Board decided to hold an emergency meeting about a model prisoner who had had such an amazing impact on other people. And guess who came to that emergency meeting? The relatives of the man Billy Moore had murdered. And you know what they did? They begged the Pardon and Parole Board to save the life of Billy Moore. They said, Billy, after he became a Christian, he came to us and, and, and he asked our forgiveness. How could we not forgive him if God already had? How could we not forgive Billy more if God had forgiven us of our sins? So we have forgiven Billy. The Atlantic Journal wrote an article called Billy Moore a saintly figure. Mother Teresa called the parole board from India and said, just do what Jesus would do. Well, Billy Moore knew beyond any doubt that he was guilty of murder. No question about that. And no question about the fact that under the laws of the state of Georgia, the most appropriate sentence for Billy Moore was for him to die in the electric chair. But those five members of the Pardon and Parole Board looked at that repentant man, and they did something so unprecedented, it was on the front page of the New York Times the next day. They looked at this repentant figure and said, Billy Moore, we are going to show you grace. And they not only commuted his death sentence so he wouldn't die in the electric chair, they also set the wheels in motion for him to actually be set free and allowed to return to society. I've never seen any case like this in American justice where a confessed killer on death row is set free completely. But that's what happened to Billy Moore. And when they announced their verdict, the entire room exploded with people singing, amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Billy Moore. 
I mean, what else could people do at that moment but to sing the anthem of forgiven people? And that, friends, is just a small taste of what the grace of God is like. It is undeserved forgiveness. It is unmerited love. It is outrageous compassion. It is incredible clemency. And can I tell you where Billy Moore is today at this very moment? Billy Moore is in church because he's now an ordained pastor of a church in Rome, Georgia. And he has a ministry right between two public housing projects where a lot of kids don't have a dad and are being raised by a single mom or without a parent. And Billy Moore has a ministry to these young, these young men. And he says, there is a God who loves you and he wants to forgive you and he wants to adopt you as his son. And he wants to change your life and he wants to make your life count. And so Billy and I become friends. And so one day I was at Billy's house down there in Rome, Georgia. We were sipping lemonade. And I said to Billy, I said, you know, Billy, there's no TV reporters here. There's no cameras. There's no tape recorders. I just want to ask you a question. I just want your gut honest answer. He said, what is it, Lee? I said, here's my question. What is the real source of your transformation? It was the prison rehabilitation system, wasn't it? And he laughed. He said, no, it wasn't that, Lee. I said, well, then what was it? Was it a a, a self-help program or a positive mental attitude? He said, no, it wasn't that. I said, what, was it Prozac? (laughs) Was it transcendental meditation? Was it psychological counseling? He said, come on, Lee. You know it wasn't any of that either. And I knew it wasn't, but I wanted to hear it from from the lips of Billy Moore. So I asked, no, Billy, you tell me. I want to hear from you. What is the source of your transformation? And he looked at me and he said, Lee, plain and simple, it was Jesus Christ. He said, he changed me in ways that I never could have changed on my own. He gave me a reason to live. He helped me to do the right thing. He gave me a heart for other people, and he saved my soul. And I thought, aren't those the four things every single person on planet Earth is looking for? A reason to live? Don't you want a reason to live that goes beyond eating and drinking and going to bed at night and getting up in the morning and going to work? Don't you want a reason beyond that? Think of that guy in that video down in Haiti watching a woman come to faith in Jesus Christ, headed for heaven now. I bet he's glad he has a purpose in his life. So we want a reason to live. Billy said, God, help me do the right thing. Don't we want the power of God in our life when we're tempted by sin, when we're going down the wrong path and we need the power of God to break us from a habit or to to wrench us off that path and get us on God's path? Don't we want the power of God in our life to do that? Don't we want the power of God to help us have a heart for other people instead of just focusing on ourselves all the time? And most of all, don't we need God to save our soul? Friends, that is the power of God to change a human life. And if you asked me, tell me, Lee, about this God of grace, I'd tell you the two stories about Stephanie and about Billy. And I would say, God loves you. He wants to adopt you as his child. 
He wants to forgive you. He wants to transform you. He wants to make your life count. And then I would ask this question. Is there a window of opportunity opening in your soul? Do you feel God reaching out to you? Do you feel him putting his strong hand on the side of your face and saying, this is the child that I want? Friends, if the window is opening for you, jump through it. Jump through it. Don't let it slide shut once more. I'm going to give you an opportunity to jump through that window right now to receive this God of grace as your forgiver and leader to change your life, to change your eternity. So let's just close our eyes and bow our heads. If you want to take that step, I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird. Just in your heart, God will hear you. In your heart, say, Lord Jesus, I, I need your grace. I need your grace. As best I can, I believe that you are the Son of God. And I confess to you the obvious, which is that I am a sinner. I may not have killed anybody like Billy Moore, but I've done things. I knew they were wrong before I did them, and I did them anyway. I've sinned. And Lord Jesus, I want to turn from that. And in an attitude of repentance and faith, I want to receive your free gift of grace, your forgiveness your gift of eternal life. Help me to live the kind of life that you want me to live because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, we started this talk quoting Luke 15, and we know that that same passage tells us that whenever anyone puts their faith in you through your son, Jesus Christ, a party breaks out in heaven. So we join that party right now for all those that have taken that step today who have ran and jumped through the window, received forgiveness through your son. We celebrate that. We pray for those that are not quite ready. God, don't let the window shut. And we pray for this church. We pray for a place that cares about people, that cares about their future, their eternity, their life in this world, their purpose, their priorities. We pray for a blessing on each person that's part of the harbor. Guide us, use us to be your tools, to spread your message of hope and grace far and wide. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless you all. Thank you.